Bear Books presents Ending Samsara, written by JW Voice and read by Daisy Ray. Part 1, Chapter 1, A Friend Left Hanging As a clandestine entrepreneur, as Marcus would occasionally refer to himself, work was either a breeze or an all-out hustle and no two days were the same. He'd long ago decided that to run a successful operation, and one with longevity, certain precautions needed to be adhered to. One rule he stuck to no matter what, never deal from home. The fewer people who knew his address, the better. While this measure gave him a degree of comfort, it meant a great deal of planning, as well as regular commutes to London from his rented property in Chatham. When he'd left home at 8am on a cold and overcast Saturday morning, his custom-made bomber jacket had been lined with three and a half ounces of the finest haze. It was now the early evening and the man was two and a half ounces lighter, but he still had a final drop to make. Years in the business had equipped the dealer with a certain instinct that some might call paranoia, and they often did. Marcus maintained that it was simply a keen perception of the authorities and also of any opportunists looking to steal from him. After leaving a regular client's flat just off the high street, anxiously awaiting his next appointment, this perception went into overdrive. Marcus was slumped on a bench, his phone out and his leather gloves on his lap. With at least 20 minutes to kill, he'd preoccupied himself with a Reddit thread. How significantly can you affect another person's life without ever meeting them? Whether he'd be inclined to admit it, Marcus was opinionated, and his MO for scouring certain internet discussions was often born of a compulsion to push viewpoints, typically contrarian in nature, on anyone with the time to read them. I won't deny that you can have an effect on someone without actually meeting them, he typed. The cesspool that is the internet has clearly bolstered this, but I think the key word here is significant. I personally don't feel like I've ever been significantly moved by a total stranger's actions or vice versa. It's a big old world we live in. All the meaningful ways my life has been affected have come as a result of the actions of people distinctly in my circle, not some keyboard warrior on the other side of the globe. He made a satisfied nod, locked his phone and slid his gloves back on. His fingers were starting to feel cold and he'd achieved the goal of passing enough time. When he'd returned to his feet and refocused on his surroundings, he spotted them immediately. Two men, both tall, broad and dressed in black. People of their description always aroused his suspicion, especially when their movements seemed to match his. Just before reaching the gambling arcade, he made an unnecessary detour down an alley and briefly lost them. But when he returned to the main road, they were behind him again. He had not smoked anything himself today, which was another of his self-imposed rules. Keep a clear head until your drops are done. This gave further credence to his inkling that these men were undercover police. He tightened the drawstring of his hood and glanced back over his shoulder for perhaps the fifth occasion. Definitely not paranoid, Marcus decided. They were still there. The men inspired an image of bureaucratic force, with their expressions of silent intent. They'd also maintained a distance of no more than 30 metres for the last 10 minutes, 
police were always weary not to spook their target. An ounce was a significant amount to be caught with, he knew. It meant conspiracy to supply, a serious slab of time considering his priors. Marcus weighed up his options, all of which involved an initial assimilation into the bustling crowd ahead of him. Option one, dump the weed in a passing bin. He looked skyward. Not wise, CCTV covered the entire high street. Option two, stop and wait their questioning like any innocent and upstanding citizen might. And risk a search, he thought, just not smart. The third option entered his mind the second he'd joined the flood of afternoon shoppers. Lose them. Marcus upped his pace and weaved his way in between a pram and a mobility scooter, eliciting a watch it from the elderly driver. A right turn led him towards a supermarket car park. Human traffic thinned here. Almost like a dance, he sidestepped and shuffled around an overweight family. Then he veered away from the heaving high street and into semi-open space. A furtive peek behind confirmed that the men were still on him. He broke into a run, acutely aware of how suspicious he might appear. A hooded, dark-skinned male bolting down the side streets. He was almost surprised no one had tackled him instinctively. Blinders firmly on now, he paid the onlookers no mind and gave no further attention to his pursuers. If he had, he would have noticed them, mirroring his route around the corner. Marcus ran into the next car park and scurried in between sections of tightly packed cars. It was rare times like these that he was thankful for his diminutive stature. His lungs were starting to burn already. No surprise that they were first to feel the strain. Are they still following? he wondered. The mass of pedestrians behind him made it too hard for him to tell. He knew the area like the back of his hand, but did they? The next small parking lot backed onto his client's address, a group of upmarket flats. While there was a chance he could disappear into the building unnoticed, this depended largely on the resident, Gary Ferguson. Marcus would have to make a mad dash for the entrance, and gas could not leave him at the intercom for long. The dealer leapt into the small crowd on the next street before checking for his assailants again. They were nowhere to be seen. Thank God for school track and field. He advanced towards the building. Don't mess about, Gaz, he prayed. He reached the door, selected the number on the intercom and his plea was granted. Hello? It's Cuss. A low frequency beep soon followed and he snatched the handle. It was a swift entrance. Swift enough, though, he wondered. Not waiting to find out, he started powering up the stairs. His body screamed for him to slow down, and his mind overruled. Sodden with sweat, his lungs and legs on fire, he sprinted up the final staircase. Stop when you get to the door, stop when you get to the door. Even his thoughts were gasping for respite. Shit, was it fourth floor or fifth? His adult mind scrambled for the answer. Five one two, he muttered. Fifth. Thank Christ he hadn't smoked today. His burning legs almost gave out on the last two steps. Buckling like Bambi, he made it to the door and stopped himself with an outstretched hand. His breath was fast and heavy as he pressed the doorbell three times in succession. His heart was racing, thumping in his ears and temples. He let a moment pass before he rang the bell a final time. All right, all right, came the exasperated groan from within. Thank fuck, thank all the glorious fucks in existence. He pulled back his hood and felt his sweat-soaked afro on the backs of his fingers as he did so. What a sorry state he must look. 
He tried to slow his breathing and attempt to grasp some semblance of composure as he awaited the opening of the door. Why are you so out of breath? Gary asked with suspicion from behind the still-closed door. Marcus immediately slammed his clammy hand over the peephole. I'll explain in a sec. For God's sake, let me in. Clunk came the sound of the deadbolt sliding across. A second later, the door opened just as far as the chain would allow. Where's the fire? said the chubby-faced man on the other side. Can you just let me in? Marcus wheezed. Gary nodded, unhooked the chain and opened the front door. Marcus pounced inside and slammed it shut behind him. Oi, easy! Overweight and bearded, with a greatly receding hairline, Gaz was dressed in what appeared to be a velvet tracksuit. Sorry, Marcus immediately slid the deadbolt back and replaced the chain. What's going on? I'm sure I was being followed. What? By who? The police, I think. The police? Gaz's already bulbous eyes had protruded even further out of his head. Well, I think it was the police. They weren't in uniform. Gary raised an eyebrow. You been smoking today? No. Why would you bring police to my place? Shh, not so loud. Marcus looked back at the door, conscious of the volume. Relax, they can't come in without a warrant. Did they watch you come into my building? Not sure, I don't think so. Gary took a breath. His face had returned to its original pallid complexion. Okay, come through to the living room. Marcus followed the man along an extensive hallway. The massive apartment was remarkably well kept, and aside from some garish framed prints, stylish even in a generic kind of way, it seemed characteristic of a wealthy 30-something bachelor with a predilection for video games. Marcus had been here several times before, and as he entered the living room, he remembered its most bizarre and significant feature, the bookcase. He glanced at it and smirked. By all appearances, it seemed like an ordinary bookshelf, but Marcus knew differently. Whoa, don't leave me hanging, Gaz said. The dealer drew his attention away from the feature to notice the man's outstretched hand. Oh, sorry, said Marcus, clasping it. They bumped shoulders in a fleeting half-embrace. Okay, I asked for the lemon haze this time, right? Marcus nodded, unzipped the inside of his jacket and pulled out a large bag from one of the chambers in the lining. Gaz snatched an overly packed wallet from his coffee table and removed a seemingly negligible wad of notes. Marcus quickly pocketed this and handed over his product. Perching on the end of his reclining leather chair, Gary immediately took out a wooden box of smoking paraphernalia from the drawer of his coffee table. He ground up a hefty portion of his purchase, which created a distinct aroma and started rolling a joint. So, said Gary, taking an initial puff, his face contorted with pleasure and he released a plume of smoke. How do you know they were coppers? I mean, if they weren't wearing uniforms. Well, said Marcus calmly, they definitely didn't look like junkies and I don't know anyone else with a reason to chase me down the high street. Did they shout anything? No. Well, there you go then. They probably weren't police. Perhaps they were disgruntled customers. Gary lowered his voice. Annoyed at your prices, maybe? Very funny. Marcus shook his head. I'll remind you that my prices are more than fair for the quality. Well, I'm providing you refuge and I've seen you grow. It wouldn't hurt to give a valued customer like me a discount from time to time. Marcus thought on this for a moment. 
That's right, he has seen your grow. While it was perhaps nearly a decade ago now, Gaz had been in his loft. He remembered showing him his intricate setup of plants and heat lamps and boasting of his varied array of strains. Was there anyone else he'd given the tour? He thought he'd always been so careful. Had years of getting high on his own supply affected his memory? He looked around and decided to change the subject. I never see this supposed missus of yours. You sure she's real? Gaz rolled his eyes. She's in Milan, I think, some fashion thing. There was a momentary silence. Marcus glanced at his phone to check if a friend had called him back. She hadn't. Gary reached for a remote and turned on the enormous flat screen suspended from the ceiling. His eyes had already started to glaze over from smoking. He lowered the volume of the TV. You want some of this, he said, raising the joint. No thanks, Marcus said. Want to stay clear-headed? Suit yourself. He placed a spliff down on an ashtray built into the arm of his sofa. At least take your coat and gloves off. I'm good. Gaz tuttered and shook his head. So how you been? I mean, despite running around like London's most wanted. Apart from that, I'm dandy. Cool, said Gaz. He flicked through the TV and almost immediately settled on some kind of Japanese animation. Second order of business then, let's discuss my proposal. Right, said Marcus. Remind me again. Gaz picked the joint back up. Just before taking a drag, he said, God, maybe you're right not to partake. Your memory is dog shit. He sighed, releasing a mushroom cloud into the air. I've told you about my intention to branch out and enter your domain. Okay, I remember. He shook his head. That's the thing, mate. It's not really my domain, is it? It's drugs, cuss. Of course it's your domain. No. With what you're looking to shift... Don't you think it's time for you to upgrade your current existence? Time to earn some real dough? I sell weed and psychedelics, Gaz. That's it. Exactly. And I'm the only person who might find your CV impressive. You already have an infrastructure, a decent client base and the relevant know-how. Look, I know precisely what goes into the products I peddle. What you're talking about is something else entirely. Please, spare me your ethics. You're a bloody dealer, not a pharmacist and I could increase your profits tenfold with barely double the effort on your part. Sorry, mate, not interested. I'm handing you an olive branch here, pal. He pointed at him, joint in hand. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Although Marcus could tell his friend intended to sound threatening, he was unaffected. Gaz waved a finger before reaching under his seat into what appeared to be some kind of hidden compartment. From this, it produced a slab of white powder and slapped it onto the table. Now I know you're all about quality, so sample this, tell me it's not the best you've ever had. Marcus frowned. I don't doubt that, I have zero frame of reference. Gaz raised an eyebrow. You can't be serious. Never tried the devil's dandruff, not even once. I know, right, Marcus said, smiling. When it's called such tempting things, how could I not have? Fine, Gaz put the bag away. You can just take my word for it. My source is going to corner the market with this stuff, along with some inconceivably pure heroin for this side of the pond. He grinned. Although, like you, I'll have to take his word on that one. Oh, nice to hear you have some limits. Of course, I'm not a smackhead, I'm a businessman. Yes, and I thought your business was with computers. What's happening with that? You hit a slump? God no, Gaz scoffed. Business is booming which is why there was never a better time for me to branch out. 
the money I have pouring in could front a dozen operations. The guys ready to launder for me are looking at the easiest work of their life. Sounds like you've got it all figured out. I have. All I need is a few good runners. Guys I can trust. You, my lucky friend, fit that category. Gaz reached over and tapped him on the knee. Come on, Marcus. Don't let this kind of opportunity pass you by. You can keep your grow on. Keep shifting the plants for pennies, but add a bit of powder to the mix and you'll earn your first million before the year is out. My business is weed and mushrooms, Gaz. I don't dabble in poison. Gary laughed. Take a look around, he said, gesturing with his spliff. A few months down the line, I'll have a detached in Knightsbridge. I could sell you this place for two-thirds what I paid for it. He smiled and Marcus couldn't tell if he was being serious. Where's the ambition? You want kids, right? You don't want to raise them in that shithole rental you call home. I think I'd rather my kids not have a heroin dealer or prison inmate for a dad. Please, Gary sneered. You're already in the game. Who cares what you're selling? The penalty is pretty much the same either way. I care, Gaz. My product is relatively harmless. I grow and sell myself and I make enough money doing it. And what happens when it's all made legal? You'll be screwed, but we'll always have the monopoly on coke and smack. I'm sorry, mate. Thanks, but no thanks. Gaz shook his head and took a particularly heavy drag on his joint. The two of them sat in silence for a few minutes while the inane and poorly dubbed cartoon continued on the TV. Marcus thought about his next move, unsure whether it was safe for him to leave yet. If he was being watched, he'd rather not risk leading anyone back to the impressive range of horticulture in the loft of his apartment. Just as he'd started to lower his guard and feel his heart rate settle at its usual resting level, ring! The doorbell sent it racing again. They both flinched. Don't answer it, Marcus said in a low voice. Gaz looked confused. But that's my doorbell. I didn't buzz anyone up. Tradesman's entrance? No, it still would have buzzed. Ring! The bell was held down for considerably longer this time. You don't need to answer it. The ringing was succeeded by pounding on the door. Gary turned off the TV. Please, barked someone from the other side. I have to answer it, Gaz said. You don't, they need a warrant. To come in, Gaz said, noticeably flustered. I won't let them do that. Okay, if they ask, deny that you know me, he sighed. Hang tight. There was another series of rattling thuds. Please! Marcus and Gary jumped to their feet almost in unison. One second! Gaz yelled down the hall. As his friend left the living room, Marcus slowly moved towards the bookcase. He listened as the front door was opened. Good afternoon, sir, he heard one of the officers say. Hello, replied Gary. Can I help you with something? He then lowered his voice. Marcus tiptoed forward to hear a little better, but he was only able to decipher the last few words. You lads got a warrant? Uncertain of what to do and equally unsure if his friend might rat him out, Marcus considered the special bookshelf in front of him. He stepped towards it and spotted the wide black and red spine of a book. In the event of a zombie apocalypse by Panic Room. Subtle, Marcus thought. What kind of absolute prick would conceal the rear fire exit of their own apartment? knowing Gaz's fiancé had no notion of the room's existence. His hand was firmly on the fake book when he heard a loud thud from the corridor. Oi! You can't do that! Marcus flinched and yanked the book down. The bookcase opened like a door. A split second before closing it behind him, he heard a harrowing yell. 
Whoa, you don't need to... Gary's cry was cut short and the rest was muffled. All was silent inside the secret room. Marcus acknowledged his fight-or-flight response kicking in, although he had absolutely no intention of fighting anyone. The staircase at the back of the room led to the roof, he knew, and on the roof there was a fire escape ladder. Suddenly he remembered the third element of the acute stress reaction, freeze. This was the clear selection his sympathetic nervous system made. Frozen in place, he looked up at the monitors on the wall. The same men who'd been following him were restraining Gaz on the floor. One of them was wielding a handgun. They are definitely not pleased, Marcus decided. Entirely unconfident of what action to take and feeling somewhat safe in his current hiding place, Marcus stayed put and watched the screens intently. The man with the gun had Gaz in a chokehold. The other was now pacing around the apartment, apparently looking for something. He disappeared into a room off camera. Then he returned a moment later with a dining chair in each hand and a large extension cable draped around his shoulders. He placed the chairs down right where Marcus had just been standing. Then he climbed onto one of them and fixed the cable to a large light fitting on the ceiling, leaving the plug to dangle down. He tugged at the cable several times with clear force, dropped to the floor and repositioned the chair directly underneath it. Gaz was trying to struggle free, but the man holding him was clearly far stronger. The second man had positioned the other chair beside the one beneath the dangling wire. With some effort, both men heaved Gaz onto his feet and then onto the chair. The moment Gaz's feet were on it, the second man hopped onto the other one and supported him in a bear hug. Gaz appeared to be resisting, but he was greatly outmatched. In the meantime, his assistant had retrieved a third dining chair, which he placed on Gary's other side. He hopped up onto it to join them. In different circumstances, the spectacle might have been amusing three grown men standing on dining chairs in the middle of a room. As the one man maintained his bear hug, his partner wrapped and tied the cord around Gaz's neck. Marcus gasped. There was nothing funny about this. Though Gaz seemed to fight even harder, he managed only helpless spasms. After tying the makeshift noose, the man stepped down, leaving his associate to restrain a visibly terrified Gary. Marcus watched on in horror, certain he should intervene, but dissuaded by the earlier appearance of the handgun. The free man moved to the back of Gaz's chair. With a little struggle, he dragged it back. Only the man still astride his chair, and his tight embrace was saving Gary now. There was a bend of slack at the cable. The man opened his arms... Reminiscence of a trapdoor releasing under the gallows, and the slack disappeared. He hopped down to let Gaz hang there. Then he promptly moved away the two adjacent chairs. Gaz kicked out at them for support and clawed at the cable, tightening at his throat. Then he helplessly reached out for the light fitting just beyond his grasp. His legs jerked and extended out at nothing for a moment, and the men grabbed one each to stop him from swinging. Marcus wanted to look away but couldn't. He saw Gaz's face reddening as the poor man continued to scratch and pull at the wire cutting into his throat. This live lynching was stomach-turning, like nothing Marcus had ever witnessed before. The resolution was good enough to show the sheer terror in Gaz's eyes and also the disturbing impassivity in the eyes of the men beside him. After a while, Gaz stopped snatching at the cable. Though his arms hung limply by his sides, he continued to convulse. A moment later his whole body fell still. The men let go of his legs. 
he slowly twisted clockwise, then anti-clockwise, and Marcus realised he was gone. The men gathered two of the chairs and disappeared into the other room, and Marcus was left to stare at his friend's lifeless hanging body. He pulled out his phone. Only now did he think of calling the police. It had all happened so quickly, so unexpectedly. What could he have done? No one would have arrived in time to stop it, and if Marcus had stepped out he'd surely have faced a similar fate to his friend. When the first man returned, he repositioned the remaining chair beneath the feet of the corpse, sideways on the ground, as if it had been kicked over. You could call the police now, Marcus thought. The men might still be apprehended. This carried a price, however. He'd have to explain his involvement with Gaz and therefore his own illicit activity. Then there was the unknown identity of the men. If they fled before the police arrived, these were clearly not people to be crossed. Indifferent to the body hanging from the ceiling, the murderers started walking around the room straightening items out, removing any signs of a struggle. It seemed clear they wanted it all to look like a simple case of suicide. Marcus couldn't watch the screens any longer. The images of Gaza's final moments felt like they were permanently seared into his brain, and this made what he planned to do next seem all the more callous. Could he really carry on as nothing has happened? The men clearly didn't know he was in the building. He was certainly had no suspicion of anyone witnessing their crime. But he was the one who'd led them there. This much seemed beyond all doubt. His mind went into overdrive as he attempted to make connections and determine a motive for what had just transpired. He considered the variables. Gaz was dead set on branching out. He'd been unequivocal about this. Who knew what steps he'd already taken? The software specialist was a wealthy man, a millionaire in fact. With such means at his disposal, he could make substantial waves in the world of drug running. If anyone in opposition had caught wind of his plan, surely their best option would be to stamp it out before it even started. But how aware were they of Marcus's own potential involvement? They clearly knew of his friendship with Gaz. They'd followed him and he'd given away his friend's home address. This prompted even more questions. Why was he the one to lead them there? And where did they think he'd disappeared to after the fact? Perhaps this didn't matter to them. They'd got what they'd came for. Would it even matter if they lost track of a petty weed dealer along the way? Marcus sat down on the floor with his head in his hands. Movement from the monitors caught his attention every now and then. The men were scuttling back and forth between the rooms. He had no notion why. Again, he found he couldn't face the image of the living room and the tormenting sight of Gaz's dangling figure. He stared at his own trainers for a while, wishing he was anywhere else. The next time he found the courage to look up, the men were gone. Now what? he considered. He had to get out, and he sure as hell wasn't going to leave the same way they had. In a kind of listless procrastination, he looked at his phone. The only notifications were from social media. Behaving as if he'd not just witnessed a murder, he opened Facebook. Gary Ferguson had just updated his status. To everyone I love, I'm deeply sorry. Sometimes on the surface a person can seem like they have it all, and sometimes this is an illusion. The pressures have become too much to bear, and I've decided to leave the party early. To quote Lao Tzu, the flame that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Thanks for the good times, everyone. See you on the other side. Laters. Gaz.
Marcus started to hyperventilate, fighting against the urge to vomit. They'd accessed his friend's account and evidently done their research. He thought on the words from the quote to the analogy of leaving the party early. It all fit perfectly, and if anyone was going to post a suicide note on social media, it was Gaz. The sickening observation was at least enough to get him up and moving. Marcus opened the door to the fire escape. Before descending the vertical ladder, he scanned the windows of adjacent buildings and the pavement below. No one caught his eye, and at ground level the communal courtyard too was empty. His walk and subsequent train ride home were incredibly tense. Every passing car made him flinch, and every passerby was a large male figure until he saw them up close. He decided to hop off the train one stop before he was supposed to, which added two miles to his walk. He reasoned that the diversion would give an element of unpredictability to his route, as well as allow extra time for him to try and clear his head. He spotted a Ford Transit van when he exited the station. It was distinctive because the windows were blacked out. Not paying close enough attention to its registration or the graphic on the side, he took a shortcut through a gully and emerged on another road. Seconds later, the van's reappearance made him jump. It was the tinted windows that unsettled him the most. He was close to home now, but instead of heading towards his building, he crossed the road and carried on to the local corner shops. He spent at least ten minutes here, vacantly staring at the shelves of overpriced product. Eventually, he picked up a can of lemonade and bought a packet of rolling tobacco at the counter. Heading back towards his house, his heart stopped. The black van was back, a few houses short of his own. It trolled alongside him down the road. It had to be the same van, same make and model, same ominously tinted windows. Now, as it crept down the one-way street, he could make out the logo of a removal company on the side. He upped his pace and it trundled along with him, right up to his front door. He shakily slotted in his key and glanced back. Engine still running, it mounted the pavement on the opposite side of the road. When he stumbled into his kitchen, Tilde was sitting at the counter. Hey babe, she said, eyes firmly on her phone. Hey, he whimpered. Her head shot up. Shit, are you okay? You look pranged. Marcus slid down the wall and onto the floor. He burst into tears and started shaking. Eventually, he managed to blurt out every detail to his girlfriend. By the time he'd finished, she looked as terrified as he did. Did you touch anything? This was the first thing she asked. I touched his door handle, the locks, but I was wearing gloves. So you left no evidence? I suppose not, no. Could you have stopped it? I don't think so, no. They had guns. Did you call the police? He answered by shaking his head. Are you going to? I don't think so. Whatever you decide, I'll stand by you. It's all my fault, Marcus said, burying his head in his hands. I led them there. Are you sure? Positive. Her speech quickened. Did anyone follow you back here? Ah, I don't know, he continued to quietly sob. Are we in danger, cuz? I don't know. Marcus was shaking. He let Matilda clutch his hand. Tilde, what are we going to do? You're safe, that's the main thing. For how long, though? I guess we'll see. After double-checking that the back doors were locked, Matilda went to bed around midnight. Guilt engulfed Marcus as he watched her ascend the stairs. It was not the first time he'd felt this way. When they'd started dating, 
he'd told her he was a horticulturalist, and once he'd finally admitted how he really made his money, she'd taken months to warm to the idea, almost breaking up with him twice in the process. Since then, she'd reached a level of total complicity. She even gave up her clerical position in an art gallery to help him with the business. It was these rare instances of danger and chaos, alien to most regular professions, that made him despise himself for ever dragging her into his world. Marcus knew he wouldn't sleep a wink that night. He was highly strung at the best of times, a trait he'd carried from childhood. The image of a hanging man prompted a flood of deeply suppressed memories and he lit joint after joint to try and escape the continuous closed-circuit television loop playing out inside his head. He was a fool to think that weed would help. The drug had never been the ally he'd hoped it to be. If anything, it merely amplified his anxieties. He opened a bottle of whiskey and moved into the spare room to peer out into the street. He propped a cricket bat up against the wall and stayed by the curtains where he continued to drink and smoke. With the lights out, he intermittently glanced out the window to the quiet, lamp-lit road below. Every indeterminate noise caused him to jump out of his skin. He rolled his phone over his hand. His friend had called him back. He'd missed two calls from her since he'd last checked. He was too tense for conversation now. The removal van with the tinted windows remained in place with no indication if anyone was still inside. He googled the company name and it returned no results. It was them. He was sure of it. If you'd like to learn more about J.W. Voice, the author of this story, pop along to the show notes where you'll find a link to him right there. And as for Bear Books Podcast, we're on all your favourite social media, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. See you on the next episode. Bye.